Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back to Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, a young woman of uh, inestimable value who is going to share some incredible stories with us, Ms. Marion Blumenthal Lausanne. She's an author, a marvelous book, and a survivor of the Holocaust. So she'll be speaking of a dark period in our history and enlightening us as to what happened to her in her life. Welcome to Seldom Said, Marion. Thank you so much for inviting me and for uh, including me in your program and for giving me the opportunity to share my story with your listening audience. And it's really a story that Anne Frank might have told had she survived. It is also a story that conveys a message of perseverance, determination, faith, and above all, hope. And um, I'm very grateful that I'm given this opportunity to be with your listening audience. I can assure you the pleasure is ours, Marianne. Can we start with a bit of personal background who you are, where you've been, kind of an overview, and what's brought you to this time and place. Okay. Um, I was born in Germany, and life in, in 19th, December 1934. And life in the early 1930s in Germany was, for my family, very much it is here for, um, for you and for us the way it is today. My father was in a successful shoe business my, in a very small town in Germany, and my parents, to your older brother, and I lived comfortably, comfortably with my grandparents above the shoe store. And life for Jews was increasingly made more difficult. And in 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were formulated and enforced. And the following are just some of the many major restrictions that were imposed on the Jews in Germany. Jews were not allowed into theaters, into parks, into swimming pools. All public schools were close to Jewish children. There was a cur curfew for the Jews. Non-Jews were not permitted to shop in Jewish-owned stores. And and the big letter J for Jew was stamped on ID cards. These restrictions went on and on. And it was then that my parents decided to make arrangements to leave the country. My grandparents, who were in the late 70s and ill, they refused to leave their home. They could not understand the urgency or the necessity of doing so. And they did pass away in 1938, just 11 days within each other. And soon thereafter, we received our necessary papers for our emigration to America. And at that time, I was just four years old. And then came Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass when the Nazis smashed the windows and the storefronts of Jewish-owned stores, Jewish establishments, synagogues, and Jewish books were burned and destroyed. And this was the beginning of a massive program against the Jews in Germany, a massive verbal and physical assault against all German Jews. And in reality, this was the beginning of the Holocaust. And the night of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, my father was taken away from our home, 
and sent to concentra- transported to concentration camp Buchenwald in Germany. And all sorts of terrible stories were related to my mother, and we did not know if we'd ever see my father again. He was released after three weeks only because our papers were in order for our emigration to America. And to think that just a few years prior, my father had been awarded the Iron Cross for his exemplary military service in the German Army of World War One, And now they imprisoned him just a few years later. Uh, it's a mentality that is very, very difficult to understand. So that that's pretty much what went on prior to our being transported to the various camps. Children usually have one viable memory that stands out. Call it a kind of negative epiphanal moment. Do you have such a memory of something happening that enlightened you to how difficult this was going to be? Uh, not really, because I was so very young, and I really don't remember very little of my uh, um, years prior to our being uh, transported to the various camps. So it was just what was told to me by my mother, and I must tell you that I was always extremely comforted by my mother. And that is why my attitude towards life, and it's a, it, I like to think it's a very positive attitude, is the way it is because of my mother. An amazing, amazing lady. She passed away seven years ago, six weeks short of 105. This lady went through two world wars and... Uh, uh, had a, left a widow at the age of 37 after my father died six weeks after our liberation. And there she was with two sick children. She herself had typhus. And uh, there she was left a widow, no money, no home, no country. And she picked up the pieces and an amazing person. Okay, that's my mom. And... Uh, I'm here in more ways than one because of her. And uh, anyway, to, to get back to the various um, uh, parts pertaining to that led up to our transportation. Do you have any questions or do you want me to just go on? Every now and again, you say something that really strikes a nerve, a soulful comment. And the comment about your mother is arresting. And I don't want to linger too long on the topic, especially if it's a difficult one. But since she was such a special person, 105 valuable years, can you paint a verbal picture of her so that those in the listening audience can close their eyes and see her in their minds? First of all, she was magnificently looking. She barely had a wrinkle in her face at the age of 104. That's the last nice picture that we had of her. And uh, tremendous inner strength and fortitude. And she was, uh, after the war, she we were transported finally to Holland, to the Netherlands. And within the year, she learned Dutch. And she became a masseuse and a manicurist. 
And three years later, when we emigrated to the United States, I just recently saw a folder, got a folder of hers that uh, it was among her papers, and in it is the, on parchment, mind you, the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, the Monroe Doctrine, I don't know why in the world she had that, but she did, and uh, President Kennedy's um, inaugural address. This lady didn't just have those papers. She, she read them. She had a magnifying glass, and she read them. Now, I don't think there are many immigrants who go to such an extent and, and, and feel such pride in becoming an American citizen as my mom. I think it's pretty amazing, and uh, and it, it's because of 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 her um, way of life and and her. Um, since you asked about her, let me just share her most favorite saying. It's a serenity prayer. God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot. I can I cannot change the wisdom to know the difference. And, uh, well, how's that go? Give me the courage to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom to, something to that effect. Your audience may, may understand and know that, uh, that saying. It, it, it's a very meaningful saying. My engineer at the moment is mouthing the same prayer. It's a, it's a marvelous series of it words. Is, it is. And, and, and she lived by that. And uh, my father, yes, my father passed away six weeks after liberation. She was left completely alone, not knowing what was going to happen to our remaining little family. And uh, but my mother remarried three more times, and this saying was just hers. She just uh, knew that uh, things would get better, and and they did. A woman so extraordinary would not so much be demanding, but be such a difficult lodestar to follow in a family. Your father must have complimented her well. Yes, they were 11 years apart. My father's 11 years older than my mother. and uh, But from the very beginning, they were married in December 1931, and in 32-33, the anti-Semitism in Germany already was formulated, and one thing led to the other, and it uh, it, it just became a very, very difficult existence in the country. But we couldn't leave because we were with my, my grandparents lived with us. We couldn't, they didn't want to leave, and we couldn't leave them. So when they passed away, that's when we first, my parents first made arrangements for us to emigrate to America. And of course, in between, there were five and a, almost six and a half years of life in various camps. And uh, it was bag and bells and was the worst of, of all. And... Um, so did your Jewishness become more important than a sense of nationality or culture 
I've spoken to a number of survivors who react by saying when they're told to act negatively toward their religious beliefs, those beliefs become intensified and stronger. Have they become stronger in your life to the present day, Marion? Very interesting. Um, for me, yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful to our man upstairs. You know, we all have the same man upstairs, just different ways of reaching him. And uh, I, I, I'm grateful that uh, he made sure that enough of us survived so that we will always be here. We have three children, nine grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. And that conveys survival and continuity. And, um, of course, I'm, I'm grateful. But then there were those who have an altogether different attitude towards the religion. And that includes my brother. My brother was two years older than I. He passed away a year and a half ago. And uh, he was with my father in the men's section in Bergen-Belsen. And um, although he was happily married, by choice had no children, and has nothing to do with organized religion, including ours. So uh, as make me very sad, but I did not fault my brother Albert. As I said, he was my father in the men's section, and I'm convinced that he saw and experienced things that I did not. So our man upstairs, God puts us on this earth and gives us a beautiful mind, and it is this mind that allows us to choose right from wrong, good from evil. We are capable of making choices, Therefore, men did this to one another. But of course, why did he have to make it so bitterly cold when we were standing out there on Appel all day? That was, we, we had to stand there every single day in the cold, in all kinds of weather, for them to count us five by five. We had to stand there. And without food, without water, with, as I mentioned, in all kinds of weather, without protective clothes, and frostbite was common. We would we would treat our affected toes and fingers with the warmth of our own urine. So, my brother has an altogether different attitude. He was with my father. I was with my mother, and uh, until the day he passed, he um, had a certain. Uh, anger, if you will. I don't know. He, he, he had tremendous tumultuous feelings, and so do I have tumultuous feelings within me. But here I am with a wonderful family and an, a um, tremendously supportive husband. We were, thank God we were married 66 years, August 2nd. And uh, Nathaniel is from New York. He did not go through the Holocaust, but is hugely supportive of what I do, what we do, and my travels. I speak in schools, universities, churches, and uh, and it needs to be shared while there is still time. This is the last generation will hear these stories for a cent and have their questions answered. And above all, above all, made to understand the lessons learned from that dark period of our history. And these lessons work right in with character education. 
and uh, they pertain to our lives today and um, to the world situation in general. So we need to teach our children, and that's what we do. And there's a book, my book is called Four Perfect Pebbles, and the title pertains to one of the many games, imaginary games that I used to play as a nine-year-old. Mind you, I was nine, ten years old when things were at its absolute worst. We had nothing, nothing to occupy our time with constructively. So I had these imaginary games, and uh, one of them was to look for four pebbles. And uh, in my mind, if I were to find those pebbles, it would mean that the four members of my family would all survive, my mother, father, brother, and I. It was a painful pastime, but if I couldn't find the third or fourth pebble, might that mean that one or two of my family members would not survive? Nevertheless, this game gave me something to hold on to, some distant hope. And then I had other games, and these games were my survival techniques. They were my survival skills. We all have survival techniques within us. When the need arises, we just have to search for them, find them, and be sure that we put them to work. No one is spared adversity. No one is spared hardship. We all have to overcome obstacles at one time or another. But with perseverance, determination, faith, and I feel above all hope, one can overcome just about anything and everything. Above all, never, ever give up hope. There is a quote attributed to uh, the late President Kennedy. He was asked about the evil in this world, and he said, forgive your enemies, but remember their names. I would imagine that presupposes an acceptance that horror has been done, but let us move on. How do you react personally to something like that? No. Forgive your enemies. First of all, we must not generalize. Not all Germans, not all who live in that country at that time were responsible for what was done to our people. But those that were directly responsible for such evil, a million and a half Babies, children were murdered in such a cruel, cruel way, experimented on. That should be forgiven. They didn't just accidentally step on my toes. This was carefully thought out by a... Germany was, at at that time, one of the most cultured nations in the world in the 30s. And this is what they did. This should be forgiven, not by me. I can understand. But only those that are directly responsible... We must not generalize and judge an entire group by the actions of some within that group. That's another important message. One thing that I've encountered in dealing with Holocaust survivors, to whom I must admit I have the utmost respect, these are just special people who have experienced extraordinary times and survived and excelled. But one thing always comes to my mind, and I'm thinking now of someone like Nathaniel, How does one relate if one hasn't been there? Most survivors I've known married someone who went through some aspect of the moment. How does one understand across the table a wife or husband saying, do you understand, dear? And to acquiesce and be fair, one usually says, of course, yes, I do. But how can one 
my husband does. He he he's sort of. I was sixteen and he was nineteen when we met. I was eighteen. He was twenty-one when we were married. So uh, even though I did not talk about it fully, as you heard me speak about it now, and as I speak about it in schools. Um, he knew my background, and he was hugely understanding. And there are nights when I have difficulty sleeping, and with his support, I overcome those difficulties. And uh, I, I, I don't know exactly how to answer your question, but I was just am extremely fortunate to have him by my side. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether all spouses who who have partners who um, withstood, uh, withstood such a terror, always understanding, I, I don't know. But my speaking engagements and the, the, what I do, and I've done this now since since 19, the early 90s, and uh, only work because of Nathaniel. He's the computer guy. Everything is, is now with technology. So... Uh, he communicates with uh, requests that come in and so on and so forth. He's an, uh, amazing. I hope that someday, uh, Mr. Mada, you'll get to meet him as well. It would be a, a gift that I would treasure. Yes, yes. My only prop that I have when I speak is the very yellow star that I was forced to wear. It says Jude on it, which in German means Jew. It was just another way to denigrate us, to isolate us, and to set us apart from the rest of society. Um, we, we, I, as far as I'm concerned, we must, first of all, we, we must, we must be kind and good towards one. And that, that is the basis of my my message is to be good and kind and respectful towards one another, no matter what the religious belief, color of skin or national origin. And this respect towards one another must begin in our homes. I want the kitchen table, dining room table, wherever we gather as a family. And we, the adults, must pass it on our places, business and, and the students that I address in the classrooms, halls of the school, and only in, in the towns and the cities, and only if there's respect and tolerance towards one another in the countries can we expect to have peace in the world. And we must begin with our children. Can you bring us to that point where you first arrived at a camp? Have you thought about that moment, even though you're young, can you paint a descriptive, lyrical picture of that? Well, we were first sent to um, Camp Vesterborg, which was a transit camp for Jews in Holland and uh, those who emigrated from various other countries in Europe who intended to emigrate to the United States or elsewhere. And uh, once Germany... Um, to control of of Holland, the Netherlands, all those of us who came to emigrate were placed in Camp Vesterbork. It was a transit camp for uh, for those of us, and then from there, 
many of us were sent to various concentration and extermination camps. Um, we were, if you might not call it lucky, we were not sent to Auschwitz, which was an extermination camps. We were sent to Bergen-Belsen. And I remember arriving in Bergen-Belsen. Um, it was dark. It was rainy. And we were greeted by German guards who were shouting at us and greeting us with their vicious dogs and weapons. And um, and then they herded us to the camp itself. We had to walk to the camp. Now, Bergen-Belsen um, was divided into various areas. It was sectioned off and surrounded by electrified barbed wire, and guards were always at strategically placed high guard towers. And in the evening when it would get dark, the bright searchlights from above would constantly sweep the campgrounds. We, uh, 600 of us, were crammed into each of the crude wooden heatless barracks meant for just 100 when they originally built. And there were triple-decker bunk beds with two people sharing each bunk. German winters were bitter cold and very long. We were just given one thin blanket per bunk and a straw-filled mattress. And this bunk was our only living quarters, and that for two people. I was very fortunate that I was able to share a bunk with my mother and that my brother was able to share a bunk with our father. But can you imagine two strangers, two adults sharing a bunk under such horrendous conditions? Bunk was no larger than... Uh, the carpet that we're, some of us are still familiar with. Um, I, as a child, remember once seeing a wagon filled with what I thought was firewood for the one small oven that we had in our barrack. That oven, of course, was never used. I soon realized that what was in the wagon were dead naked bodies thrown one on top of the other. Uh, toilets and so-called washing facilities were at a great distance. In the most primitive outhouses, toilets were long wooden benches with holes cut into them, one next to the other. And there was no privacy, there was no toilet paper, there was no soap, and hardly ever any water with which to wash. And in the almost year and a half that we were in Bergen, Belgium, never once were we able to brush our teeth. And um, every morning, as I'd mentioned earlier, um, it was every single morning, without fear, that we were ordered to line up on a huge field. It was called an Appellplatz, where we were counted five in a row. And I'd mentioned that earlier, and it, it was torture. We had to get up and do this six o'clock in the morning. And at their whim, if they felt that they didn't have the right count, we would have to stand there for the rest of the day. And there was no way that they could have the correct count. People were dying every day. Some people couldn't get out of their bunks. But they had a count. I say it was just another way of, of uh, making life hugely difficult. Our, and our diet consisted of just a slice of bread a day and, and some hot watery soup with grizzly meats and turnips and potato peel. And the bread was later cut back and given to us just once a week and only if our so-called quarters were neat and in order. Our birthday present to one another was that little 
piece of bread that we had saved up from the previous week. So to this day, I cringe when I see people wasting food, particularly bread. And uh, just the other day, a friend of ours ordered a bagel. She took the insides of the bagel out and threw it away. It's to this day that that bothers me to no end. And um, we were marched to an air de shower once a month. And we had heard about exterminations and gas chambers in other areas. And we never knew for sure when the faucets were turned on as to what would come out, water or gas. And um, the Nazis did their utmost to, to break us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And unfortunately, they did succeed with many of our people. It was not uncommon for us to to um, to see people who attempted to escape, even though they knew that there was chance was impossible because we we saw them electrocuted against the barbed wire so they just in in their mind just preferred death immediate death over that existence in the camp anyway that was that was camp life on that just just uh, a part of it our bodies here in clothes that were infested with lice. We learned that there was a distinct difference between head lice and clothes lice, and squashing them between my thumbnails. That became my primary pastime. And uh, and then, of course, I had my imaginary games that I mentioned earlier. And, uh, and, um, I, and I also, one of the games was I knew that someday I once again would have what I refer to as my three Bs, and these three Bs represented our everyday comforts and necessities that we all take so much for granted. First B that I knew I was going to have someday was a bed, my very own bed with enough blankets to keep me warm, clean sheets. And the second B was a bath, warm water, soap, clean towels, and that would come toothpaste and a toothbrush. And the third B, of course, was bread. I knew that someday I once again would have enough bread so that I would never again go hungry. I had all these imaginary thoughts and games, if you will, that that, that worked for me. I, I had plenty more, but I don't want to spend time sharing them with you. And... Um, Anyway, after a number of months on our meager diets, our stomach shrunk so that the hunger was no longer painful. Teenagers and men suffered most from malnutrition, and they were the first to die. Those who lasted the longest were the women, and mothers in particular. It was their strong will to keep their children alive that kept them going. And as I mentioned, my mother was one of those extraordinary ladies. There's no doubt in my mind that it was my mother's inner strength and fortitude that finally saw us through. And um, the population in in, in Wagenbelsen were dying off rapidly, but not nearly fast enough to satisfy the Nazis. And at one point they decided to send three trainloads of our people towards Eastern Europe, towards the extermination camps and the gas chambers. 
and my family was among the 2,500 on the last of those three trains. And under normal conditions, the train went from Bergenbelt to wherever they were going to take us would not have taken more than maybe 10 hours. But because the Germans tried to evade the Allies, it was already towards the end of the war. It was already um, April of 1945. Uh, uh, We were on that train for two weeks. They tried to avoid the Allies, and there we were without food, without water, without medical supplies, without sanitary facilities, and that meant no toilets. And um, so eventually we were, the Russian army liberated our train and led us to a nearby farm village in eastern Germany. And um, and there we uh, took over the various, it was a very small farm village, and we took over the homes. Many of the people fled. Some actually stayed to help us. And we were, had, we were infested with typhus. And many of those who helped us actually contracted typhus from us and also passed on because of us. But there you go. Even among them, we have to understand there are good people. And that, that Do you we must believe? never generalize. And um, so, as as I mentioned, the the, uh, the the homes, the houses that we took over, kitchens were, were stocked with ample food. It was rich and good, actually much too good for our starved bodies. We could not tolerate that unfamiliar nourishment. And at that time, at the age of 10 and a half, I weighed 16 kilos, or as we know it here, 35 pounds. And my mother weighed a mere 70 pounds. So the Russians did the best that they could to help us along. And um, and so it was. And then from there, it was only upward and forward, except that my father had to die six weeks after liberation in that farm village. And that's where he's buried. And Did you have a uh, contact with your father? In the camps, was there any methodology you could use, you and your mother, to maintain contact with your father and your brother? Very little. When we were standing on a appell on that daily basis, that's the we would search for one another, hoping and hoping that the family would still be intact. And um, and and that was the only time they would really. And my brother, he was only twelve at the time. He was allowed to come over to the women's section every once in a while, but my father never was allowed to come to the women's section, and of course, we not to to his area. But my brother wasn't permitted. So, um, but it, uh, he was a very proud, brilliant individual, good businessman, good father, and uh, uh, stripped of all his dignity and. Uh, and my brother witnessed that and was old enough to understand. And that's where his anger came in. But you heard me say, people did this to one another. God gives us free will. So we have to be careful before we judge the man upstairs or anyone. 
Was there an association amongst inmates themselves? Were there examples of altruism on the part of one inmate to the other and vice versa? Uh, Robert, I was really too young to understand that. I don't know. All, uh, all I know is that everyone looked out for themselves pretty much, but there was, huh, okay, there was one family, the name was Birnbaum, that's the last name. Mr. and Mrs. Birnbaum, with their six children, all survived, every one of them. And they were amazing, amazing couple. There were so many children that were left without parents. Parents passed away, and they were just roaming, and they would take these children under their wings. And not that that could give them anything more to eat or ease their pain, but at least they gave them some comfort. And uh, they were amazing people. Have they maintained contact with others in the camp? These sound like extraordinary folks. Yes, yes, yes. After the war, we went back to Holland, as I mentioned earlier, and my brother and I were in a children's home, and they were in charge of that children's home. And uh, to this day, I am my my dearest friend. Her name is Susie Birnbaum, and uh, she lives in Israel, and we also have children grandchildren and a great-grandson in Israel. So whenever we go back, we always uh, uh, visit with our uh, with my friend Susie and some of the other children that were in this uh, uh, home. That's where we started our education in Dutch. And three years later, we came to America. I started all over again in English. And um, But my brother and I were very determined to learn the languages and uh, we were absolutely excited and grateful that we were given opportunities to go to school. And although both of us worked after school, very hard to help our mom pay bills. And uh, but we, we uh, they put me in, in the in the fourth grade at the age of thirteen when I came to America because I didn't know a word of English. And uh, but with extra help and going to summer school and taking extra courses, I was able to be graduated from Peoria Central High School. That's where my Nathaniel and I met in Peoria, Illinois, and uh, I, I was able to be graduated five years later at age 18, ranking eighth in a class of 267 students. So students today need to understand and need to realize that one can succeed if the will is there. And um, Let's segue to a moment of joy. Can you describe the evening, the afternoon, the morning, the time when you first met Nathaniel? Of course. Okay, it, it was a Jewish agency that found a home for my mother, my brother, and, and me in Peoria. And uh, Nathaniel, who is from New York, went to Bradley University in Peoria. And we met on the holiday of Yom Kippur. That's a very important Jewish holiday in the synagogue. So the, it 
was an Orthodox synagogue, and the men sat downstairs, the women sat upstairs, and there was a section in back of the the women's section for students from Bradley University, and that's where Nathaniel sat, and, and I guess recorded each other's eye, and that was it. Love will out. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lovely story, right? It indeed is. Yeah, and and, and the book is for perfect lovers. It's it's all described in it. It really uh, has a very happy ending. And uh, it's... um, It was published back in 1996 and co-authored by Lila Pearl, a very accomplished author. And uh, her brother, by the way, won the Nobel Prize in Physics back in 1995. And uh, it's been translated into German, into Dutch, into Hebrew, into French. And if you like, you can all read it in Japanese. So, but Scholastic Book Club has had it since 1995, and many schools use it in their curriculum. And because it has a Second World War woven in with my story, so it makes an interesting read, and it's a very decide, good book. How did and, you decide, Marion, to write a book to put your thoughts to page? Yeah. It, say that again? How did you decide to put your thoughts to page? I didn't decide that at all. I thought that in the 90s already, there were so many books written pertaining to the subject, but it was Lila Pearl who heard me speak to a a group of middle school students, and she saw their reaction, and then she approached me. She asked whether I would work with her to put the story into book form, and with the help of my mother and my brother, because much I do not remember before the age of four or five years old, so I needed their input, and with their help, uh, the manuscript was completed in about a year and a half, and uh, and it was accepted almost immediately. One rejection, and the rest were all expenses. And Harper Collins has had is now the hardback is in the thirty-second printing, and they just came out with a twentieth anniversary edition with an afterword. They wanted to know what happened in the past twenty. 3 years since the book was first published. So now we have four perfect pebbles with a new cover um, with an afterward. And, uh, and then there is a documentary with uh, Deborah Messing as a narrator called Marion's Triumph. And that's been out and all these can be gotten from Amazon and so on and so forth. But are there overall, other are there other books in your itinerary for the future, do you plan to continue writing? My friend, Mr. Amato, I was born in 1934. Okay, you figure it out how old I am. Okay, and no, I don't intend to write any more books. And uh, I do intend to pick up our efforts in traveling again. My husband has been uh, battling some health issues so uh but he's doing very very well and we certainly we had to cancel six round trip flights in the past few months and uh, hope to pick up our schedule once again early next year and uh, that that's very important today's generation is the last that'll hear these stories firsthand so we have to reach out to them as long as there is time, it will run as fast as we're 
as we can, as long as we're able. And someday these young people will have to bear witness when we are not here any longer. So we have to keep on running as long as we're able. And we'll, as I said, we'll continue to do that once Nathaniel is better. And he's doing well. So Thank God for that. Yes, for sure. But above all, I, I, I wish you and I wish your listening audience, their children and grandchildren, all succeeding generations, a healthy, happy, productive future in a peaceful world. That's what we wish them. One would be quite curious as to your reaction to the commonplace anti-Semitism and prejudice exhibited today. A student approached me some time ago and said that he was in the midst of a discussion that became very abrasive and very embarrassing, and he did not know what to do. Of course, I told him what I thought he should do, but it was entirely up to him. What advice do you give to those who live in a time where the kind of insensitive nature we experienced rarely has become common form? ignorance on their part. They're poorly educated in this area. And they, all they need to do, and, and then we have the Holocaust deniers, and they're part of it. I, it is just something that, it, it's very interesting. When I speak in schools, I, I am certain, and I speak for, for adult members of, of the community, there must be those that they know exactly why I'm there and the, what the subject matter is. And there must have some alternative feeling as to the Holocaust and deny it or have uh, feel that, that, that uh, it's all exaggerated. All they need to do is go to Germany and see for themselves. It is mandatory for the subject to be taught in Germany. It is against the law to deny it, although there's anti-Semitism again there, as it is throughout the world, unfortunately. And you know that the Jewish population is a fraction of 1% worldwide. So what is it? What is it that we did wrong? I think in part... Uh, I, I don't know, is, is it maybe maybe envy? Because throughout the years, material things have been taken from us. Throughout the centuries, material things have been taken from us for whatever reason. So the only thing that was left is book learning. Learning and reading, and we have some very important people who are in the sciences and in medicine. And uh, I don't know, is it envy? What, what is this? I, I, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me. I think if one could rationalize ignorance carried to extreme, one would always be at a loss for words. It's not only ingrid, it's, it's it's a compounded kind of cruelty and insecurity that's manifest in anger and violence. Given all of this, I don't think people fully understand then the significance 
of having a nation called Israel in 2019 and not having such an alternative in 1938. What does Israel mean to you and Nathaniel? If we would have had an Israel, Doctor, Doctor, are you, to me you're a doctor now, <laughs> Mr. Amato, if we would have had an Israel back in the late 30s, many more of our people would have survived. There wasn't a country in this world, including America, that would allow us in. There was a ship, the St. Louis. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which was already on the shores of Florida in 1939. And very unfortunate, uh, President Roosevelt and his administration turned the ships back to Germany. Are you familiar with that? Indeed I am. It's a tragic story. And a handful of those people survived. Okay? So there wasn't a country that really wanted us. Had there been an Israel, many more of our people would have survived. So we might... It's a tiny country the size of New Jersey. That's all it is. But unfortunately, its location, you know, it's surrounded by enemies. They want to shove Israel into the sea. And uh, instead of accepting it, and Israel is, is, I don't know how they do it, but they did so advanced in technology and in medicine and ready to help. But they have, with all their might, they have to defend themselves instead of using that might to help others, which they do anyway, as much as they can. Um, yes, we must hold on to that little country of Israel, for sure. Have you ever been motivated to transmigrate and move again? To Israel? Yes. Uh, there was a point, but with all the wars that that little country is is, is threatened by... I I am fearful. I, I've I've had my share, and uh, I'm grateful to live in this magnificent country of ours, no matter what the administration or who is in charge of this country. So we're still grateful, and we still have a, a freedom that so many countries do not um, enjoy. Do you keep a diary, Marion? No. I do not. And have no intention to. Oh, no, no. I'm, no I, I don't have to. I don't have to. And they, this book pretty much describes the way life was for me. And, uh, and I've got thousands and thousands of, of wonderful documentation from students and from teachers and from uh, university students and, and professors. And I don't know what to do with all of that. We live in a house 59 years, and you know what can accumulate in a house when you live so many years. And we have, it's a, lots of closets. We have so, if you can think of any, anything that we can do with our documentation that we have here, uh, you let me know. I certainly can. <laughs> Would you donate it to... Uh... 100%. Marvelous. I didn't even I didn't even allow you to finish what you were saying. <laughs> I can understand. <laughs> and and I do I would very much like you to come to us since you have an interest in this. 
take a look, and if you can think of any um, where this can be donated and put to use, because there will come a time when we're not here any longer, then all that's left is documentation. Is there something that carries a special aura, a special crown, something that is a prized possession that both reminds you of the past and your hope for the future? Wow. Uh, it's my family. My family. And, of course, my, my, as I mentioned before, my only prop that I have is, is, is that star that I was forced to wear. My mother had such foresight. The documents that are uh, in the in the book. I mean, it's without documentation. The book had no. There would be no validity to uh, a book. Would the manuscript would not have been accepted? But uh, the documentation that my mother kept, documents that she kept in her knapsack. That's all we had was a knapsack. She had such foresight. She kept that ugly star, and uh, and. and that, but there's not, nothing really in particular except what's in my mind and it's in my heart. The American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City very often asks, especially interested acting students, to answer a series of questions. It's been used at a number of universities. The final question is rather interesting. You're at the Pearly Gates... How would you like the angels to welcome you? How would you answer that for yourself, Marion? Well, I hope that our men upstairs will remember the good. I hope that I uh, subjected our young people with I get so many wonderful, wonderful emails and written letters by them. I thought I, I had it so difficult at home. It, their home life is so disrupted for various reasons. And hearing your story, I feel that I can also go on with my life and I can overcome adversity. And, and so those are give me a good feeling knowing that I've reached young people and who whose, whose lives have been disrupted in various ways. And uh, I'm always very grateful that I, I'm given opportunity to, to speak to and with students and audiences really of all ages. And um, so things. it's so important, though, to to remember to be respectful and kind and good towards one another. Can you imagine six million Jewish people were murdered during the Holocaust? Six million. This, the, Long Island, both Nassau and Suffolk County, has a population of approximately three million. Can you possibly imagine twice the population of Long Island wiped out. It's impossible to imagine that. So it has to be put into perspective. And, uh, and, and among the six million, one and a half million children, 
and it, it, it's just uh, it, it's it's just a number. But if you put it into perspective, then you understand the numbers. And you have the I don't know. Are you familiar with the paper clips? It, it's a was a uh, a documentary that was filmed in Tennessee, Whitwell, Tennessee, where there's had no knowledge about the Holocaust. And there were two teachers who went to Chattanooga for a, a workshop, and they were introduced to the subject of the Holocaust. And they brought that subject back to their little middle school in Whitwell. I mean, with the population of that little town, maybe a thousand or something. Well, they created a huge project, and a, a documentary was made how they educated their students and passed this along to the rest of the country pertaining to them. They, they, they um, asked worldwide to send them paper clips. They hoped to get six million paper clips. Each paper clip signified one person. And that's how you can understand the the number, the numbers. And it, it was just, uh, they used my book there and they asked me to speak there, which I did. And uh, it just, just uh, the country's very familiar, the world is very familiar with it, but yet you have those who uh, have their own agenda, and that becomes very dangerous, very dangerous. So that's why it's so important to reach our young people as much as quickly and as much as possible. And so two and a half minutes. A mission, it's become a mission of mine. We're within two and a half minutes, Marion, of what has been an extraordinary program. I would love to invite you back in perpetuity anytime you wish to, Love to continue your story and how you're progressing toward that ultimate reward in a pleasurable life. Perhaps one question, though, that has been raised to me personally and has instigated me to reach out to second gens, second generations, how do you share this experience with children, your children, so that they can share it with their own? And perhaps we can use that as our final point. Just to hear the story, just to learn from the story. And when I introduce, when I speak, I speak to fifth graders, I explain, I, I, I say to them that they look like a wonderful group of, of students and children. They must have had a... Uh, comfortable bed to sleep in because they look so rested and they had a good breakfast they look so healthy and well and they wear lovely clothes well-fitting clothes and uh, I, I know they were able to brush their teeth in the morning and get washed and I explained when I, when I was their age I didn't have any one of those necessities and comforts that we all take so much for granted. And then I explain, let me explain why. And then I go into my story. So they they understand on their level. And of course, I don't begin the story in, in, when I speak to older students or to adults, 
but little ones understand it in that on that level and uh, and then it it's i i just hope that i'm given many more opportunities to reach out to audiences of all ages to share the story because there's so few of us are left to to do so you're a marvelous treasure Mary, and I certainly appreciate the time you've allowed us to spend with you. As I say, the door is open, it's unlocked, and I'm waiting on the other side, as are other members of my listening audience, my engineer included. In point of fact, in the future, if you'd like to attend, I would periodically like to invite you to clarify and clarify again. Well, thank you. Thank you. And... uh... And I hope that you could come to our home one day and see what we have available that would be certainly um, very, very helpful for future for to be used if for, in the future when we are not here any longer. Documentation and of all types and photos and things of that sort. You have my promise. And you promise you will come, and I would like to have your input as to what could be used to perpetuate these stories and to make the future generations understand in holding on to these stories and to learn from them. We'll have to end with that thought, which is both poignant and promising, And you have my word that will acquiesce to it and follow through. This has been a special program. Our guest has been Marianne Blumenthal-Lazan. This is Seldom Said. Be with us again.